Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All right, guys, I'm going to forego the bio, and the reason I'm going to forego the bio of Dr. William Marshall is because he stands uh, above uh, reading bios. He's a great, great theologian, uh, founding faculty member of Christendom College. Uh, I count him as a dear friend of mine. We've stood by so side by side in church many, many times, worshiping God together. He chanted the epistle at my wedding. And it's just great to have you back, Dr. Marshner, a good friend, a faithful theologian, a son of the church, and we're all looking forward to being with you uh, here tonight. So thank you for joining us. Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all sin and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, Dr. Marshner. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. And um, I want you to stop with these encomia. <laughs> you are threatening my salvation by puffing up my ego. So stop. All right. All right. I want to pick a starting point for our discussion tonight, which is about doctrinal development, uh, what is and is not a development, and so on. I want to start with a very familiar starting point. It's the notorious fact that ideas have consequences. And people do not always wish to face the consequences of their own ideas. Even a person who's resolved to be consistent may be in for surprises because the person probably does not know all the consequences of his or her ideas. Okay? This is a fact of ordinary experience, and it's studied today in some fancy new branches of logic. Epistemic logic is about knowing, and doxastic logic is about belief and whatever. Anyway, there is a, um, a theorem uh, in this new branch of logic, which is very handy, and it goes like this. If I know or believe the proposition, call it P, and that proposition implies another one, let's call it Q, it's not possible to infer that I know or believe that Q. In other words, what I believe may carry consequences that I don't know yet, don't believe yet. Okay, so if I know that P, and P implies Q, it doesn't follow that I believe Q, or know the Q. What follows, rather, is what I ought to believe, or ought to know, 
Okay. If I admit the proposition P and then express doubts about something that it, that it implies, namely Q, I lay myself open to attack by anyone who knows that P implies Q, right? So if the attack comes, my position becomes indefensible, okay? Now the connection between Q and what I already know or believe may be very remote, hard to see. I may be able to plead that no normal person would have grasped the connection. I might be right. But all of that is beside the point. Objectively speaking, my position is indefensible until I admit that implication Q. Okay? This idea of epistemic indefensibility is one that requires us to investigate the logical consequences of what we, what we believe and also deeper truths, not yet recognized truths about what we know. Okay. In any case, the church is never in an epistemically inconsistent position. The church rigorously seeks to believe all the logical consequences of everything she knows or believes already. Okay? This is what makes the church so striking. You have a finite body of revelation which we call the deposit of faith. It's been committed to us, to the church, by a God who is epistemically perfect because he knows all the consequences of what he has revealed. But we as a church do not know all the consequences of what we believe. We strive ceaselessly to overcome the epistemic indefensibility of our human condition. Just as we strive continually to overcome the moral inconsistency of our sins with the life we believe we should be living, right? The Catholic Church is resolved to be consistent. So she's prepared to believe new truths whenever their logical connection with what she already believes has been discovered. Should a heretic arise to deny the new alleged consequence, the church may very likely dogmatize it solemnly because the church is thus committed by nature to doctrinal development, committed by nature to unpacking all the implications of what she believes. Why? Because what she believes is what she has heard from God. 
Revelation is what God says. Believing is hearing what God says with assent. And we strive to make our belief complete as his knowledge as the Holy Revealer is complete. He knows all the implications. We have to find them all if we don't know them already. Okay? Now, knowing is not always a case of believing that a proposition is true or accepting a proposition is true. Sometimes we talk about what we call in philosophy these days, accusative knowing. Not knowing that something is the case, but knowing somebody. And what I've just been saying about knowing propositions is also true about knowing somebody or something. Suppose you say, I know Latin. And I say, oh, okay, then you can help. Here, I hand you this book. Here's a thorny sentence in here. I can't construe that sentence. Can you help? And you look at it and you say, oh, my Latin's not quite that good. I'm sorry, I can't get it either. What happens in that case is that you're slightly embarrassed, right? You claim to know Latin and then you can't translate it. That's embarrassing. Let me take a more common sense example. You say, I know George. And I said, you do? You know, you know George? Yes, I know George. Oh, well, then I, I guess you're planning to come to the wedding. And you say, what? I didn't even know he had a girl. <laughs> That's embarrassing. You claim to know somebody and that there's some widespread truth about him that you don't know. It's embarrassing. So in accusative knowledge, we also have a dynamic, a requirement, a tendency to pick up more of the true facts about the thing we already know or get into words for the first time, something we already know. I know George. Sure. Known him for years. And all of a sudden, George does something that strikes me as bringing out something I always knew about that guy, but never put into words before. You know what I mean? He does something and I become able for the first time to make explicit a truth that I sort of knew about him, but couldn't put into words before, didn't have occasion to put into words before. Now I can, all right? That's growth of knowledge in the case of accusative knowing. Does that make sense to everybody? All right. Now, Protestantism, I'm going to have to say uh, here at the outset, um, doesn't like the idea of doctrinal development. They don't like it that the church keeps bringing up new implications of what she believes and making them dogmas. Protestantism, you might say, prefers to have the set of dogmas be closed. All the dogmas are in the Bible. 
Don't tell me about new implications you just came to understand, before you on you, before you on human reason, before you on implications. If it ain't in the Bible, it can't be a dogma. Oh, that's called closed dogmatism. And there's a problem with it. It's open to an obvious inconsistency. Okay. So you're now saying that all of the dogmas are in the Bible. Yeah, that's right. Oh. Does it say in the Bible that all of the dogmas are in the Bible? Uh, no. Aha. Uh -huh. So what you really mean to say is that the Bible contains all of the dogmas except one. Namely, the one that all the dogmas are in the Bible. Is that what you mean? All except one? Well, then that new proposition, is it a dogma or not? If it's not in the Bible, it's not a dogma, right? If it's not a dogma, what is it? You see? Now, I could go on at length about this. It's an embarrassment for people who try to make the set of dogmas closed because they think it's all in some past source that we already have. Okay. What we say is that there's lots implicit in the sources we already have, but we haven't worked out what all those implicit points are. That's why we have to keep studying exegesis of the scriptures, bringing in the help of philosophy to clarify ideas so that we can work out the implications of what we already know to say we believe. All right. And unlike those who are inconsistent, we are committed to recognizing as a dogma everything we come to understand as included in what God has said to us, whether he said it in scripture or in the apostolic tradition, or let's put it this way, in the institutions he has committed to us. You know, what do we have from the apostles as the deposit of faith. It isn't just propositions. We got the sacraments from them. We got the church from them. The hierarchy. The sacraments, the hierarchy, the church herself, all belong to the deposit of faith. And it's not surprising then that sometimes we come to new insights about what to believe by reflecting on those things God has given us as communicative realities, okay? People saw from the very beginning Jesus performing baptisms, and of course, John the Baptist and others. They performed baptisms. That's good. And we started to imitate that custom. Supposed to baptize people? All right, we'll baptize them. No clergy here, I'll baptize myself. We baptize. But suppose somebody says, well, 
I think I've already been baptized, but I, I don't know. Why don't you baptize me again? What's the matter with that? Where do we get the idea that baptism couldn't be repeated? Not from seeing baptisms performed, but from coming to understand a basic truth about what all baptism gives us. Okay. We've uh, expressed that uh, theologically in the doctrine of the baptismal character. It imprints a character on the soul. That um, wonderful Grouch Tertullian uh, spoke of baptism as your enlistment tattoo. Roman soldiers got a tattoo when they went into the army, right? Baptism is your tattoo into the army of Christ. It's unerasable. Does it need to be done again? It can't be erased. It never goes away. You backslide, it's still there. But now it's a mark of your shame that you're not living. Just as the soldier's tattoo was a mark of shame for a deserter. Right? So, the sacraments the hierarchy, how the church is governed, all of these things are aspects of the reality of what God has given us that we first encountered in apostolic times. Ever since those, been t those times, we have been living under the hierarchy that God gave us. Living in the church structure that God gave us. Hence, we're not surprised that the structure of the church we believe in gives it a power to teach. Because church, God, Jesus commissioned his church to teach all nations. Am I right? Okay. Some of what happens in the development of doctrine can be compared fruitfully to the experience of a mind growing up. Now, this is dangerous, but it's got some truth to it. Maybe as a child, you were taught a line of poetry, okay? And you, uh, it was always in your head. If you were called upon to recite the poem, you could get through it. You knew the lines. But one day, Something that's been in your head all along as mere language comes through to you as a judgment. You finally understand what that line of poetry meant. Now it says something to you, right? Yeah. It becomes a judgment. Well, this is how it is in our transition as we grow up as Christians, from the things we've always heard, the language of the Bible resonating in our heads, the language of the mass resonating in our heads, to finally coming to a moment when something in that language clicks, and we understand it for the first time. That's growth in understanding. And there's a certain analogy between how an individual human mind 
grows in understanding with how the church collectively grows in understanding. All right. Now, do you think I could propose a theory that would predict when and exactly how you are going to have insights and aha moments on the things that have been in your head before, but which you never thought about yet. Can I predict when that's going to happen or how it's going to happen? No. Okay. Likewise, there's no discovery theory about dogmatic development. You can never say, What's going to bring something into the church's mind for the first time? It's often something unpredictable. Who would have predicted that a priest in Alexandria would start claiming that the Lord Jesus had a beginning in time? I don't mean his birth from Mary. I mean from as, as God. Now, Jesus wasn't fully the God, the true God, the Father God, but had a beginning in time. And this guy who came up with this idea even invented barroom ditties that popularized his thinking. Oh, there was a time, boom, boom, when he was not, boom, boom. That's how Arianism became popular. Who could have predicted that Arianism would come up? Nobody. But once it came up, it was subject to examination. Bishops heard that and said, that doesn't sound right. And they contradicted it. And the bishops quarreled with one another. And first thing you know, it goes to an ecumenical council and gets decided. And thereupon saying that Christ had a time when he was not becomes a heresy because it's now defined to be false. Now, this brings me to an elementary mistake that people make when they hear the term doctrinal development or development of dogma or something like that. They think that development is some kind of process that dogmas themselves undergo. Okay. The dogmas grow or mature or nuanceify or whatever. We get clearer or something. This is not true. This is not true. Dogmas don't develop. There's no such thing as development of a dogma by a dogma. Dogmas are fixed. A doctrinal development is an act of the church teaching a sentence infallibly, say, as a dogma or condemning it infallibly as a heresy. Once it's been defined or condemned, there's no more development. Okay? Rather, what has undergone development is vague expressions that are now crystallized in the dogma. Okay? We said from the beginning in the church that Jesus was the only begotten son, uh, that he was God from God and light from light and things like that. And 
these things that we had always said implied that he had no beginning, that he was co-eternal with the Father. But we'd never exactly faced the issue before. Arius made us face it. Okay. And then we began to understand how to correctly interpret some things that had always been in our heads as Bible verses. Father was reading a moment ago from the first chapter of Colossians. And in there, it has this line that he is the firstborn of all creatures. Begotten before the ages and so on. Firstborn, pasexitios, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of all creatures. What does that mean? Well, Greek fans, it depends on a point of grammar. Does firstborn of all creatures really reflect what we call a partitive genitive? A part of genitive names the whole of which a part is taken. If firstborn of all creatures or every creature means a part of genitive, then Jesus himself is the creature. He's just, he's a creature, but he's the oldest of the bunch. That's what Arius thought. Fortunately for us, there's a nice grammatical alternative, which we now know to believe. The grammatical alternative is that the genitive case there is a genitive of comparison. Okay. Older of means older than. So he's older than all creatures. Before all creatures, before all creation. Ah, now we've got it. Now we see the orthodoxy reflected in Colossians 1 where before Arius thought he had an escape hatch. Does everybody see? Okay. What we have a theory of and need a theory of is not discovery. How do these insights come up? No, no. What we need a theory of is how they get tested, how they get certified. You know, what? it was unpredictable that Arius would bring up his funny ideas. Well, he did bring them up. And then began the process of clarification and certification. We checked all of his Bible passages, and we saw that he was reading them wrong, right? And we saw that his ideas led to contradictions with things we already believed. That's how we, come, we become convinced that an idea occasioned in the church by an unexpected crisis is in fact a development. It's a response to the crisis. It's a development because it checks out. Okay. Checks out how. Okay. There is a famous book written by Cardinal Newman in 1845, if I recall, called an essay on the development of Christian doctrine. 
essay on the development of doctrine. All right. And uh, it was widely read and even more widely misunderstood. Okay. The 1840s were the heyday of evolutionary ferment. Everybody thought, oh, yeah, Newman is comparing the church uh, to Darwin's doctrine about living things. Yeah, living things have to grow and change. Church has to grow and change. It's evolution. Not at all. Newman was not saying that the church evolves or that its doctrine evolves. He was saying that there are ways we can test the new answers the church has to give in the face of unexpected crises to determine whether those answers are really developments or not. And to find that part, you can't pick up the book from the beginning. You've got to go a far way into it, into a chapter called Notes of a True Development. If you have a copy of the book, hunt up that chapter. It's very far, fairly far along in the book. Notes of a True Development. And in that chapter on notes, I'm going to fasten on just one of them. It's the sixth one that he lists entitled Conservative Action Upon Its Past. A true development has conservative action upon its past. Let me unpack that for you tonight, because this is, this is rich stuff. Alleged developments, says Newman, quote, which do but contradict and reverse the course of doctrine which has been developed before them and out of which they spring are certainly corrupt. For a corruption is a development in that very stage in which it ceases to illustrate and begins to disturb the acquisitions gained in its previous history. Okay. A new idea is a development in case it has a conservative impact on the ideas we already held and from which the new one has sprung. So it doesn't corrupt, it doesn't disturb. A true development in contrast, he says, quote, may be described as one which is conservative of the course of antecedent developments, being really those antecedents and something besides them. It is an addition which illustrates, not obscures, corroborates, not corrects, the body of thought from which it proceeds. Okay? Now then, think of the long experience that the church had of her sacrament of the Eucharist before she defined transubstantiation. Transubstantiation wasn't defined until what, the 12th century? Trent, maybe. Yeah, it was defined at Trent. 15th century, 16th century. Whoa, how can I be a, 
Well, nobody had said that before. It's a true development, even though it's new language and in response to a new crisis. Hello, Protestants, new crisis. But it's a development because it illustrates, not obscures. It corroborates, not corrects. Okay. It illustrates our long-standing belief in the real presence of Christ in our Holy Communion. It doesn't obscure it. It corroborates it. It doesn't correct it. Now contrast that with the Eucharistic teaching of that Swiss warrior named Zwingli. I call him a warrior because he went off to war and got killed in battle. And um, I, I won't comment on his sadness, sadness of his fate. But anyway, Wing, Zwingli went off to fight in the war and got killed. This is after he'd already started fighting. And one of the things he fought against most was our Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist, which he said, oh, come on, people. The body of Christ, that's just a metaphor. It's just a figure of speech. It doesn't mean anything about the real. In other words, Zwingli's doctrine was a correction of all past Catholic talk and practice. We acknowledge the Eucharist as the body of Christ. We adore the body of Christ in the Eucharist. We venerated it with processions and so on. We'd always done that. Zwingli would have corrected that. But the Council of Trent, in a true development, corroborates that. Does everybody see? So there's a whole bunch of relations here that Newman is pointing out between a new sentence, an alleged development, and a pre-given set of sentences that were already accepted as doctrines. It's a relation between the new sentence and the whole line of thinking that generated the pre-given set of doctrines. Made possible this, this line or attitude bent, hidden assumption, climate of opinion, whatever, may not have been early put into words. But once a disturbance begins to change the line or contradict it or reverse it, we become conscious of what that line of thought was and we affirm it, okay? Does this mean that the church can never somehow qualify a previous line of development? by defining a dogma which brings out, let's say, a neglected aspect, or so restores balance? Certainly not. Think of the, all the centuries in which we developed a theology of the church, which emphasized her authority over her members, her subjects, and her authority to teach in doctrine, right? And thus to reject as heresies false teachings. All right? Now, without changing a single word of all those developments, 
Vatican II said, let's look at another aspect here. Let's look at the genuine freedom with which the church allows people to approach her. Okay. Your decision of faith, your conversion must be free. Yes. And so there's something wrong with a pastoral policy that's going to make it a crime not to be a believer. Something wrong with that. So the right place for religious freedom, even in a Catholic society, says Vatican II. All right. That is a heretofore neglected aspect of the dogma. It's brought in for balance, but it doesn't undo any of the rest. Anything that had been there before. Now, there have been some people who haven't quite seen that. We've had some arguments about religious liberty. But if you think through it carefully, you will find out that there is no upset. There's no rejection of the previous line of developed doctrines about the church and her authority and her possession of the truth. There are six rather formal requirements established in Newman's sixth note of development. All right. And I want to help you by going through those things. Here's number one. Every member of the already established set of dogmas must still be true if the alleged development is true. That's elementary. A development cannot contradict what's already defined in the church. That's elementary. So every previous dogma must remain true if the alleged development is true. Got that one? That's an easy one. Okay, here's a somewhat harder one. Every previous dogma must still have its truth value if the alleged development is true. Must still be significant. Must still have its that the, the dogmas must still be true. The condemned heresies must still be false. They have to preserve their truth. Now, here's a case where the dogmas possessing a truth value can fail in case some alleged development is really a corruption. One of our dogmas says that Christ replaces the whole substance of the bread in the Eucharist. The body of Christ replaces the whole substance of the bread. Am I right about that? Absolutely. Okay. Here comes an alleged development. And it says, there's no such thing as substances. Oops. No such thing as substances. Well, then the problem is not contradiction, but loss of reference or denotation. Our dogma is about something, namely the whole substance of the bread, that turns out not to be there doesn't exist. 
And so our dogma comes to be about nothing. And a statement about nothing is neither true nor false. It's moot. Does that make sense? This is a case where an existing dogma is deprived of a necessary presupposition for it to be true by the alleged development. The dogma presupposes, yes, there are substances. The bread you use in the Eucharist has a substance. Christ's body replaces it. Yeah, I, we presuppose that. Take away that presupposition and you take away the truth value of the dogma. Now, I'm afraid that some rather eminent recent theologians have not quite understood this. Father Avery Dulles, for example, before he was a cardinal, wrote a book called The Survival of Dogma, in which he says, as a case in point, we might cite the recent dispute about the term transubstantiation. In terms of a common sense substance philosophy, it's meaningful to say that Christ takes the place of the whole substance of the bread. But if one denies that there ever was such a thing as a substance of the bread, or that physical realities are made up of substance and accident, well then, it becomes almost necessary to speak of the real presence in a new way. Unquote. Sorry, Father Ellis. There's no almost about it. It would become absolutely necessary to speak in a true way, in a new way. Father Dallas continues, quote, to find satisfactory equivalence for the term substance in other philosophical systems is a task of creative theology, unquote. Oops, I'm sorry, Father Dallas. Now your eminence, I'm sorry about that. Because if that's true, then creative theology is deliberate nonsense. The satisfactory equivalent of an empty term will have to be another empty term. Okay? If there's no such thing as substance, then the word substance is an empty term. An equivalent to from today's thought or science would have to be another empty term. It's like saying, oh, well, suppose the whole, the whole ether of the Eucharist becomes the body. <laughs> See what I mean? You can only replace one empty term with another if you're being consistent. Every, I go to a third point now. Every previously accepted dogma must still be non-trivial if the alleged development is true. Okay? Every dogma has, still has to be true still has to have its truth value, and now I'm saying still has to be non-trivial if the new development is true. All right. Suppose you say, well, yes, um, we have always believed that grace is necessary for salvation. Yes. And we deny that good works are sufficient. Our own good works are sufficient. Okay. Suppose somebody comes along and says, I have a new doctrinal development for you. Here it is. 
Grace is the moral goodness of our actions. To say that we have grace just means that our human actions have been morally good. That completely trivializes the doctrine of grace. Reduces grace to moral, a moral stature. And uh, makes nonsense out of our fight with the Reformation over works in our sanctification. Okay? Here's another way in which a previously accepted dogma might become trivial. Suppose we have always accepted a, a dogma in morals, saying that such and such an action is obligatory in such and such circumstances. Okay? Then we allege a doctrinal development which says that those circumstances never come together. Have I denied the obligation? Oh no, it's still there. It just never comes up all of a sudden. Uh -huh. Now I can think of how an obligation that was very important 150 years ago might cease to be very important because circumstances change for historical reasons. Consider the Catholic teaching that it was always wrong to take part in a duel. That was annoying to Catholic soldiers who felt that their honor would require them to accept a duel sometimes. And the church said, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you're gonna look like a coward, but no, you cannot accept a duel. You cannot put yourself in a position to take another man's life that way or jeopardize your own that way. It's not acceptable. So dueling was always prohibited by the church. And what happened? Well, over the course of history, dueling fell out of practice. Nobody does it anymore. Not even at the South Carolina College of Military Virtue. <laughs> Duels are not held anymore. So it's still there as an obligation, but it never comes. All right, now suppose we're talking about the indissolubility of marriage. Uh -huh. If you're validly married and you know it, you have to stick with your partner. No divorce, okay? So if you're truly married, you can't be divorced. Now along comes a very clever theologian. He says, I'm not going to deny that. No, no, no. If you're truly married, divorce is out, change of partners is out, blah, blah, blah. I'm orthodox. Then he says, but here's my little development. Okay. People these days don't have the psychological maturity that people had a hundred years ago. And so they can never give a valid consent to marriage. So all of their attempts to marry are sentimental failures. They want to get married, but they can't because they're too immature. They're too conflicted. They've grown up in a defective culture. Nobody can get married anymore. 
all of a sudden, what happens to the church's rule against divorce? It's got no more teeth because valid marriage is no longer. You see, there's a case of an alleged development that would trivialize a dogma. Okay. Next. No previous dogma may lose a logical connection to other dogmas if the alleged development is true. Okay. No existing dogma can lose its logical connection to other dogmas if this alleged development is true. Okay. Now then, um, here's an example of a logical connection between two areas of dogma, original sin and the Immaculate Conception. One is a dogma about mankind, fallen mankind in general, we're in original sin. The other one is a doctrine about, as a dogma about Our Lady. She was immaculately conceived, that is to say, she was exempted from original sin from her conception. Okay? Now then, as long as we retain the traditional doctrine of original sin, the Marian dogma keeps its connection to the dogma of original sin. It's a logical connection. Okay, suppose I come along and say, oh, I have a little development for you. We used to think of original sin as transmitted from Adam. But we're not so sure about Adam anymore, so let's put it this way. Original sin is the sin of the world. This was given to us by a, uh, a Dutch creep named Skillab, um, not Skillabex. Um, oh, I'm blanking on his name. It'll come back to me. This creep said, see, when you're born into the world, it, it, it is just a kind of an infectious place. There's evil all over the place. There's selfishness all over the place. You can't help picking it up. So this is how everybody comes to be in sin. Contagion from the sinful environment. Okay. Now, uh, what does this do to the dogma of the Immaculate Conception? Are you going to claim that Our Lady wasn't born into this world? Joachim and Anne had their baby in heaven, maybe? Are you going to claim that the Blessed Virgin was so delicately raised, she never came into contact with any evil at all? So now Joachim and Anne are officially sinless? There's a new implication for you. You can't turn original sin into the sin of the world without ruining the connection of the Marian dogma to original sin. Does everybody see? Okay. Next. The reason reasoning that was needed to generate previous dogmas must still be tenable reasoning if your alleged development is true. There must still be tenable reasoning if your alleged development is true. Okay? 
there are a gazillion examples of that, and I'm going to spare you. Instead, I want to move on to one more. Well, two more. Every previous dogma must retain its previously assigned referent verifiability conditions and falsifiability conditions if your alleged development is true. Okay, what's the referent of a dogma? Well, the person it's about. A Marian dogma is about Our Lady. Got that? Sure. Along came a Jesuit named E.J. Yarnold. This is about 30 years ago. Father Yarnold thought that he had a new interpretation of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption uh, that wouldn't offend Protestants so much. And uh, he paraphrases these two dog dogmas in such a way that Our Lady simply disappears. She's not what the dogmas are about anymore. The dogma of Immaculate Conception becomes a dogma about grace in your soul. You know what grace does for you? Grace gives you a spotless, clean new birth. Grace is just like getting immaculately conceived. Oh, gee whiz. Mary had nothing to do with it. And uh, never mind what the assumption is. That was another doctrine about grace, allegedly. Yeah, grace grows up. We all believe in grace. Well, you know, it grows up and it continues in heaven in wonderful circumstances we can hardly imagine, and that's all there is to that old dogma, dogma of the assumption. Our Lady is removed as the referent from her own dogmas. It's crazy. That's a corruption. One more here. I like this one. No aspect of the church's liturgy or devotional practice may lose a contextual implication if your alleged development is true. Okay? Contextual implications are implications that dogmas carry with respect to practice, worship, and so on. The dogma of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist carries the contextual implication that I ought to worship him there. If he's in the Eucharist and he's true God and I ought to worship true God, then I ought to worship him there, where he is on the altar. Simple contextual implication. Okay. Now consider the fact that for centuries and centuries and centuries, the church has practiced prayers to the holy angels. The prayer to St. Michael, for example. And suppose a theologian comes along and says, I have a development for you. <laughs> we now know that the angels were features of ancient Babylonian decoration. There never were any such things in the real or in heaven. There are no angels. Immediately, a church liturgical practice, prayer to the angels, becomes pointless. 
if there are no angels, do you see? It becomes no longer a sound devotional practice. I don't want you to waste your time praying to nothing. Does that make me a grouch? Okay. So I have unpacked for you seven features, I think I counted them right, of Newman's one note six of a true development. Does everybody see how this works? How conservative real developments have to be upon all of the church's previous teachings. All right. Now, I hope I haven't eliminated all that I was going to say next week about counterfeit developments. But I've certainly given you subjections, some suggestions about where that talk is going. And I hope you will tune in again and be with me next week when I shall again give praise to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Marshner. Did you have time for just two or three quick questions here? Absolutely. Wonderful. Um, we've got a couple from um, Michael and Frederick and um, Leo, and they're, they're kind of all similar, so I'm going to combine them here. Um, could you please distinguish dogma from doctrine uh, and then giving us a definition of dogma? And then also, okay. is there a list of declared dogmas of the Catholic Church? Absolutely. First of all, dogma is a narrower word than doctrine. Doctrine in the church is anything the church teaches. She has taught many things over the years that she's never bothered to dogmatize, to define as a dogma. Everybody knew it. The famous example is the Holy Spirit indwells the souls of the righteous. The Spirit indwells the souls of the justified man. Yeah. Holy Spirit dwells on us. It's in the Bible. We never had to make it a dogma. Nobody ever really denied it. So there's no dogma saying that, but there's a doctrine saying that. So doctrine is the broader term. It covers many points in the traditional teaching of the church that just have never been, in fact, dogmatized. The, a dogma is the product of, the, of a teaching act by the church's extraordinary magisterium, defining a proposition as contained in divine revelation and therefore obligatory to be believed for purposes of salvation. All right. And um, do we have a list of those? Absolutely. I'm sorry I didn't bring my copy of Denzinger tonight. The Denzinger Handbook of Church uh, Doctrines and Declarations and Councils and uh, Doctrines and Declarations and Definitions and Dogmas. They're all in there. And also, you can find a list of everything we consider a dogma in the work of a theologian named Ott, O-T-T. The book is called The Foundations of Dogma, right? Ludwig Ott, that's his name, Ludwig Ott, O-T-T. And I'm pretty sure it's still in print. And Dr. Marshall, can you clarify for us here so dogma is explicitly obligatory. 
should we also view doctrines as obligatory in assenting to them? In a way, yes. Not in quite the same way. When a proposition is a dogma, we assent to it on the authority of God saying it. Okay. Why do I believe this? Because God says it. Okay. That's the assent of faith. Doctrines that are well established in the church, but not yet dogmatized, may be questioned as to whether the assent of faith is necessary, but here be careful. We distinguish the special teaching acts that make dogmas from what we call the ordinary teaching acts of the church. In Latin, magisterium ordinarium, the ordinary teaching of the church. If the church has been repeating a claim more or less in the same words in the East and in the West for centuries and centuries and centuries, we presume that it's ready to be made a dogma. And so it is, in a sense, matter for faith already. And to question it or just throw it out or pay no attention to it would be close to heresy. It would smell of heresy. It would be, what's that word I'm looking for? Overbold, audacious, overbold. What's the word I'm looking for? Arrogant? Yeah, that, that too. <laughs> There's a special word I'm, that I'm blanking on just at the moment. But it, it, it means that um, you, you don't show proper humility towards what's long been taught. Okay. There are degrees of assent. When I hear something the church has been saying forever, practically, but it's never been made a dogma, I assent to it with the following assent. I deny any probability that it's wrong. Okay. There's no likelihood that that's wrong. Whereas with a dogma, I have a divine guarantee it's not wrong. Okay. And similarly, when uh, church authority takes some new, new approach in an area of teaching, my first response is to accept it as probably true, given the immense authority with which it's pronounced. This is sometimes not to my liking, because I like capital punishment. I'm not sure I believe in any other kind. Really? No, it's not true. <laughs> but when Paul, was, uh, when John Paul II started to say that capital punishment is hardly ever necessary in society today, I resisted that. Okay? I, 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 I didn't like that. Okay? But then I looked at it more carefully, and I saw that the Pope wasn't saying that capital punishment had always been wrong, that it had always been a form of murder. No, no, no. He wasn't saying any such thing. He wasn't saying that governments had never had the right to impose this penalty. He never said any such thing. He's simply saying that under modern conditions, it's not as needed as it used to be to protect society. Well, 
I can buy that. I would buy it if I lived in Italy, if I lived in a neighborhood beset by MS-13, I might be a little less disappointed. <laughs> you see what I mean? I'm not going to get into a fight with the Pope about sociological judgments. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Marshner. Very good. Night, night all. Appreciate it. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.